This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1933, Maurice Wilson, first World War hero, drifting veteran, and amateur aviator, lands in the aerodrome at Pernea in British India. His goal is to be the first man to climb Mount Everest, and nothing, not his lack of climbing experience, the lack of official permission, and the efforts of British civil servants will stop him. Ed Caesar's The Moth and the Mountain, A True Story of Love, War, and Everest, tells Wilson's tale, tracing his story from the First World War, through drifting across the English-speaking world, to his sudden drive to climb the world's tallest mountain. He buys a biplane, flies to India, sneaks into into Tibet, and attempts to climb Everest, only to succumb to the elements on its slopes in 1934, like so many before and after him. Ed Caesar is an author and a contributing writer to The New Yorker. Before joining The New Yorker, he wrote stories for The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Outside, and The Smithsonian Magazine, among many others. He has reported from a wide range of countries, including the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kosovo, Russia, and Iran. His first book, Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon, was awarded a Cross Sports Book of the Year award. Today... Ed and I will talk about the story of Maurice Wilson and the two stages of his quest to climb Everest, the flight to India, and the climb itself. We'll discuss how the geopolitical situation of the day affected his travels, and where Ed's interest in this failed summit attempt comes from. So, Ed, thanks for joining me today. Perhaps it's best to start with maybe the simplest and most straightforward question, who was Maurice Wilson? And where does his attempt to climb Everest fit within the broader history of Everest summit attempts? Okay, Morris Wilson was uh, the son of a mill owner in Bradford, which was in the early part of the 20th century, the capital of the world's wool trade, northern English city. And had it not been for the intervention of the First World War, the war to end all wars, I think he would have led a, an unremarkable life. Uh, he would have gone into the textiles business like his older brothers, and he would have somehow uh, made a living in, in the wool trade. And what happened to him was that in 1914, the First World War started when he was 16 years old. When he was 18, he joined up. Uh, and when he was 19, going on 20, he he saw action on the front line. And like many people of his generation, it altered him in profound ways. Um, And he was never able to truly recover from his experiences on the Western Front. When he came back to, to Bradford to live and to try and make his living, he found himself unable to settle. Uh, and he felt a restlessness 
common to those who had served in the First World War. And from about 1923 to 1931, uh, going into 1932, he wandered the world. He went to New Zealand, he went to Canada, he went to the USA, Mozambique, continental Europe trying to find the thing that would provide meaning for him. Uh, so quite apart from Wilson, Britain had, its, had had its eyes on, on Everest um, since at least the turn of the 20th century. And in the 1920s, three expeditions had gone to Everest. Um, exceptionally interesting period of um, history uh, mountaineering history because on the first mission in 1921 the, the British were literally drawing in the map as they walked to the mountain. This was terra incognita for them and in 1921, 1922 and 1924 they attempted to uh, survey a route to the top of Everest and to climb it. In 1924 famously Mallory and Irving went missing on their summit attempt and debate raged whether they had made it to the top or not. Uh, but Everest was considered by, by the British authorities to be uh, a prize worth, worth winning. It was known as the third pole. So Britain had been beaten to the South and to the North pole by adventurers from other nations. And they were damned if they were going to be beaten to the top of Everest. And so there was this Imperial, um, impulse behind the behind the missions wilson didn't share that same you know nationalistic impetus he he was going for different reasons and in in 1932 a man with no climbing experience no flying experience decided that he alone was going to be the first person to the get to the very top of everest so he hatches a plan to uh, get himself to the mountain and then to climb it alone. And the, the many different ways he could have tried to get to the mountain, his was dramatic and, and rather characteristic of uh, who he was as a person, quite a theatrical person. And he attempted to fly a gypsy moth biplane uh, packed with his climbing equipment and, and other um, you know, goods for his journey. To, he actually wanted to fly it to uh, the lower slopes of Everest, land the plane, get out and climb to the top. Um, in the end, his adventure turned out to be even more interesting than that. But that's, uh, in summary, who, who Wilson was and what he was trying to do. And, and to kind of talk about his actual attempt to climb Everest, did, did, he, did Wilson take the, the same route that Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay used a few decades later? And, or, or did he try a different, a different path? No, so um, Hillary and, uh, and Tenzing Norgay, um, like most expeditions now, they uh, they climb the south uh, of Everest, the Nepali side. Uh, Wilson, um, like the expeditions of the 1920s and 1930s, approached the mountain from the northern Tibetan side. Um, that was a route that got cut off after the Second World War for um, for British explorers. So, so. They were going the kind of classic Mallory um, route. Um, and Wilson had read everything about Everest before he went. He had no actual climbing experience, but he had, you know, a great and voracious 
uh, sort of intellectual appetite. And he read all these books and articles about Everest. And so he knew exactly the way to get to the mountain um, once he was at the Rongbuk Monastery and Base Camp, up the Rongbuk Glacier, turn left up the East Rongbuk Glacier to the foot of the North Coal, get up the North Coal, make three more camps up the mountain, Bob's your uncle, you're at the summit. Um, this is actually, I think, a, a, a good segue to, to my next question, specifically about how um, the how, how most expeditions went, went through Tibet. What are the political dynamics of these attempts to climb Everest? Um, as you say, Wilson wasn't able to climb up through the Nepal side. I think he was barred from flying over Nepal, but he also had to sneak into Tibet. That wasn't an easy journey for him um, entering entering Tibet from India. So what are the political dynamics of, of the region? Yeah, incredibly complicated, <laughs> in short. Um, but... Uh, one of the reasons why the British authorities were so determined to stop Wilson was because they worried about a diplomatic incident involving Nepal. They had just come to um, you know, uh, an agreement with Nepal and they had close relations, but they were not keen for you know a rogue adventurer to crash land his plane in Nepal. Um, the early British expeditions to Everest in the 1920s had all gone through Tibet after gaining permission from the Dalai Lama and from Lhasa um, as a byproduct of a wider treaty that guaranteed you know, protection um, against aggression. Uh, so, so British protection against uh, aggression from, from China. And, you know, the, the early... Negotiations involved huge arms deals as well as um, permission to, for a party to go and climb the mountain. Wilson did not have those permissions to go through Tibet. But when he was in Darjeeling, um, when his plane had been impounded and he was trying to find a new way to the mountain, Tibet was the obvious way to go because the uh, Botia men that he had recruited had been on those early British expeditions. And so they knew the way through Sikkim and into Tibet uh, and could guide him towards the mountain. One other thing I'd like to note is that Wilson's story, and I'm talking now from like his, his, his whole journey from, from Britain to, to eventually seeking into Tibet, this whole story appears to be impossible without or the, the British Empire plays a huge role in his ability to travel that distance. Um, how does colonialism and imperialism play into this story? Well, it's for a Brit in the early 1930s, the world appeared to be your oyster because so much of the world was either actually British or had British influence. So um, Wilson... Wilson's plan was to fly his plane through Europe and then uh, into North Africa, along the North African coast towards the Middle East. Uh, he then believed he had a permit to fly um, and land in, in Persia, as it was, um, which eventually did not materialize. But so instead, he had to go via the trucial states of Bahrain and um, you know down through Iraq to Bahrain and then uh, over Sharjah and eventually to Gwadar. So that is really 
uh, that's very difficult that route <laughs> unless you have um, you know friends uh, at RAF bases who 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 might fill up your plane. In fact, the, the British really did try to stop him and send him back several times, you know, particularly in Bahrain. And he got much more help uh, from uh, the men of the uh, RAI, the Italian Air Force, you know, who, you know, bought him a very good lunch in Pisa and filled up and serviced his plane in Rome and Naples. And uh, again, in North Africa, uh, when he landed in what was then Serenica, um, were very good to him. So, you know, British imperialism, you know, would help probably an officially sanctioned flight to India at that time. They were not particularly helpful to Wilson. Well, I, I guess perhaps it's the way it was useful is that you had all of these, I guess, aerodromes along along the way. Um, and I guess imperialism kind of well, in some ways, being barred the ability to fly over Persia or or to fly over Nepal, I guess, affected his choice of, of travel. But actually, this, this this brings me to the point about about the flight itself. I think by by focusing a lot on on Wilson's, I mean, ultimately failed attempt to to climb Everest, um, we seem to not talk as much about his successful solo flight to India. I think, despite being little more than a very dedicated amateur. I guess for the time, how how impressive was this flying achievement? Oh, it was pretty impressive. I mean, it it really wasn't long after the first ever London to Australia flight. It was you know a couple of years after that, and that had been that you know those record records have been set in a slightly harem scarum way. You know, Wilson had nineteen hours of instruction in an aeroplane before he flew solo. He probably doubled that number of hours in the UK before he set off. He really had not flown very much at all. I, you know, imagine, uh, you know, uh, learning to fly for 40 hours and then taking off, you know, on this extraordinarily um, dangerous journey. You know, he flew 5,000 miles by stages to his base in, in India. There were many times in which he could have and probably um, should have died, you know, flying through the fog, flying blind by dead reckoning um, before he landed at Tunis. The, um, you know, the extraordinary moment when he's woken up um, mid-flight, whistling in his moth towards the ocean on his on his long drag between Bahrain and Gwadar. You know, there are many, many times when you think... <laughs> other less lucky people would have um, met their maker. So it, it was a remarkable achievement. And I think he improved, as you might expect, he improved as an aviator an enormous amount on the flight itself because it was, you know, every week it was doubling his experience. And I will say, but before doing this interview, I looked up pictures of, of the Gypsy Moth. It doesn't look like the most um, sturdy of airplanes. I, I mean, I mean, what... What's the gypsy moth like, and what was it like to fly one of these planes? Uh, they are incredible machines. So the, mm-hmm. they are about 920 pounds unladen. So they're, they're light. They're made of spruce and Irish linen. Um, it feels like the, you know, the engine in the front wouldn't power a lawnmower. It's just a you – know, I, I flew in one of these things in, in England, and – 
it really you feel every buffer of wind. Um, you know the controls are extremely rudimentary. There's a stick, and you you know you do the rudder with your feet, um, and that's about it. So, you know the dials, there are like three dials across the uh, dashboard, and you know you're looking left and right over the nose of the plane to fly it. You also you know you fly very low. Um, Wilson would have seen the world in detail as he flew, and he would have been flying with maps in his left hand. Um, so he's he's flying by compass and church steeple. You know, he's he's trying to pick out landmarks and see which way to go. It really is a remarkably um, sort of tactile, vivid way to fly. You know, we think think about flying now in a you know, I don't know, across the Atlantic or something on the you know. AI um, assisted fly-by-wire systems. You know, really, Wilson flew as one might, you know, drive a go-kart or a motorbike. You know, it, it, it felt as close. He felt as close to the machine as that. And I, I did want to kind of talk a bit more about about, I guess, civil aviation during this time. Um, you know, one thing that that struck me was. Um, Wilson just went and bought an airplane, um, which, 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 which I know people do now. I mean, I mean the, the people go out and buy Cessnas, but I think today we see private airplanes now as the purview of either very serious enthusiasts or the uber wealthy, um, I guess was private aviation. I, I, I guess, was it, was it also just a hobbyist enthusiast endeavor in the 1920s or was there something more to, to civil aviation at the time? Well, it's the, you know, the period that we're talking about is really the boom time for civil aviation. The de Havilland Moth Company was one of about um, three or four, you know, larger airports, kind of civil airplane companies of the UK. And they made these beautiful machines, this series of moths, particularly that were so popular, whose wings folded back so you could store them in your garage uh, really easily. Um, you know, de Havilland claimed to be selling a moth every day. Um, by the early 30s. So they were not simply for very rich people, although you obviously needed some funds to be able to buy them and to maintain them. Um, and you see in this period, people just plucky amateurs buying these planes, you know, sort of scraping together the funds, not necessarily very rich people, and going off and having these incredible adventures. Um, you know, Amy Johnson, who was one of the great uh, aviators of the time, uh, used to carry a knife in her cockpit uh, in case she ditched at sea and had to fend off sharks. I mean, it really does feel like the kind of Indiana Jones moment for civil aviation. Um, and I would guess never to be repeated because, you know, the planes got more expensive comparatively and, you know, there were more commercial airplanes about and you know became less viable as a as a as a hobby as it was at that time yeah it feels like everything just got more complicated with you know with with i guess as air as the aviation got more commercial you had to compete with all the big companies and the flights and the radar and all that stuff it just seems like it got it, it, it seems like it gets too complicated to have these i i say amateur but dedicated enthusiasts kind of flying around on on tiny planes um but I did want to kind of going in, into the sense of adventure. Um, you mentioned before, I think, when when 
when we talked about how does Wilson's attempt fit into the larger or, or, or the broader history of attempts to climb Everest, you noted that um, Wilson wasn't in this for kind of a sense of, of nationalist or imperialist pride. He was in it for um, for the sense of adventure, um, as shown by him constantly trying to escape the, the British attempts to, to, to stop him. But I guess how how do you think Wilson saw the world? Um, you also spend time in the book talking about his more um, his more mystical beliefs. You know his his faith in the power of fasting and stuff yeah. like that. I so his he's a really complicated cat. Um, he comes from a Bradford, which was at the time international looking, cosmopolitan. Uh, you know he spoke fluent French and German before he left school. Uh, his town was full of German Jewish immigrants. He was an outward looking person. And even having fought in the First World War, when he um, you know, when he went on holiday in the early 30s, it was to Germany. So he, you know, he obviously felt no kind of nationalist ill will against Germany or German people. When he was on his way to India, you know, he'd exchange happy dinners, um, you know, sort of bombo over dinner with a French aircrew or an Italian airman. Um, when he was in northern India, he um, made friends much more readily with local people than he did with English settlers. Um, so you get the sense of this quite charismatic internationalist outlook. Um, he was also, um, you know, he'd gone through this period of really profound depression and anxiety um, in the late 20s and early 30s, having burned through two marriages and various relationships. And he took a lot of solace in, um, you know, prayer and fasting. And his his beliefs, I think his spiritual beliefs, were a weird mixture of um, a kind of Blavatskyist theosophism uh, you know, some kind of muscular Christianity, sort of new thought, um, the Oxford um, movement of Christians who believed in kind of total submission to God's will and and uh, a sense of becoming kind of childlike again in their faith. And also, I think he was impressed by Gandhi, uh, who had come to the UK in 1931, and, um, you know, the asceticism shown by Gandhi um, in his efforts to overturn British rule in India. So his his worldview was a complicated jumble of things. Um, he also really liked more hedonistic um, pursuits. He liked going to nightclubs, he liked horse racing, and he liked you know chasing women and so on. So he was a very complicated figure, uh, and it's hard to pin down exactly which thing was most important to him. But... I think it's fair to say he was a seeker. You know, he was he was restless, and he and he had this yearning to to understand the true nature of things. How do you how do you see like the, how do you see Wilson's life story as a whole? Um, and maybe 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 I'll I'll talk about how how I'm framing this question. You know, it's possible that that one could portray his story as a tragedy. You know, it's a a harsh experience in the First World War leaves mental scars that he's constantly trying to overcome, culminating in in this in his doomed climb up Everest. 
but I get the feeling that that from reading your book that 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 you would you would not see it that way. So I guess how how do you understand I guess the the trajectory of Wilson's life um, after studying it for for the book? Well, I mean, nobody's life is all one thing. So that there were, mm. you know, there were parts of his book, parts of his parts of his story that were melancholy, uh, to put it mildly. You know, his beloved little brother dies when he's twenty-eight. His uh, you know, his scars from the First World War keep itching him. His other brother, so debilitated by whatever form of post-traumatic stress disorder he suffered from that he couldn't sleep at night and his eyelids shook and uh, he woke up in cold sweats. So there was all this sadness in Wilson's life and there was this inability to form relationships, form successful relationships, lasting relationships and this restlessness. But at the same time, many of us feel versions of the things that Wilson felt. And there is something about this adventure that was to me entirely wonderful, captivating, triumphant. Um, He was, you know, he, he chose to do this extremely theatrical thing and he expressed I suppose his humanity, his, uh, his, you know, and his grit and his unwillingness to be defeated by all these melancholy things in his life, even if he ultimately had never had any chance of the, the success that he sets out to achieve on Everest. There was something wonderful in the attempt and some of the moments when Wilson seems most happy uh, on his trek from Darjeeling to Everest, when he's in the grip of the adventure itself, and he's talking about sleeping out in the open, unencumbered by, you know, everyday city living, um, you know, just a man on his own, in you know, enthralled to this to this great adventure. And uh, so, so I wouldn't view his life as a failure or the trajectory of his life as uh, sad, although there was much sadness in it. I feel like um, Wilson had to do certain things. You know, he was compelled to do certain things. And, um, you know, it was a joy to watch him attempt it. So perhaps this is a a good segue to to my next question, um, which I guess is to ask you kind of where does your – personal interest in in Morris Wilson and and his story come from? Yeah, I I first heard about Wilson. Uh, I read a book called Into the Silence by Wade Davis, which was about the 1920s expeditions to Everest, the British expeditions to Everest. And Wilson's story was a couple of paragraphs in that book. And I remember reading it and thinking, wow, that's... That's a fascinating uh, story. It just, you know, it's really the outline of a tale, a war veteran who tries to fly a plane to Everest and then climb it. And over the next few years, I would occasionally return to Wilson. I read uh, a couple of books that had been written about him, one in the 1950s and one a bit more recently, neither of which really satisfied me, and both which I felt 
um, I felt there was much more to say about him. And, you know, in the way of these things, I began to kind of scratch around for more information. I went and found various um, resources, you know, his diary in the Alpine Club in London. I eventually found some letters um, in a basement in northern Germany. You know, I, ke I kept on looking for more clues as to what his life had been like. And after a certain period of time, you know, Wilson began waking me up at night. I used to sometimes wake up thinking about Morris Wilson, which is strange. Um, so sometimes it takes writing the book to know why you wrote it. And I, and I think I, I'm interested in, um, I think I'm interested in, in post-conflict more than I'm interested in conflict. I used to cover a bit of conflict um, when I was younger. Yes. And I, and I stopped doing it when I had children. Um, and I think there's something more interesting about watching how countries recover and develop in the wake of something seismic happening. And I think there's something very interesting about how people how people respond to traumatic events and what they do with their lives and how you know you know pain in your early life can manifest itself differently in later life. I'm, I'm really interested in all those things. Um, if I, I don't think I have a theme as a writer, but if I did, that might be one of them. So Wilson's stories, I think, had stayed with me because of that. Um, and, you know, sometimes stories just hook writers and it feels unaccountable why they do so. But um, he wouldn't leave me alone, so I resolved not to leave him alone. And, and the result is this book. And I think with that, that's a great end to our interview with Ed Caesar about his book, The Moth and the Mountain, A True Story of Love, War, and Everest. Ed, one final, final question. Um, where can people find your work and what's next for you? People can find my work, my most recent work, on the New Yorker website, uh, or they can find my work uh, on edcesar.co.uk and what's next for me is uh, some more magazine work so I'm hoping to write you know, a string of interesting and kind of uh, you know consuming stories for for the New Yorker and when I have another book idea I'll dive into it the thing that I learned about doing The Moth and the Mountain is you you know, it's a it's a long road publishing a book um, if you do it right or if you try to do it right. And you need to be sure that the person you're going to spend that time with is worthy of your interest. Um, I feel like it was with Morris Wilson, and I want to make sure that the next person or subject that I spend the time with is also going to be uh, gripping in the same way. Well, I, I, I hope you find that story, and I, and I greatly look forward to reading what comes next thank you so um, much so so you can find you can follow me nicholas gordon on twitter at nick r.i gordon that's n-i-c-k-r-i-g-o-r-d-o-n you can go to asianreviewofbooks.com to find other reviews essays interviews and excerpts follow on facebook or on twitter at book reviews asia that's reviews plural and you can find countless other author interviews at the new books network at newbooksnetwork.com 
We hope you continue listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, now on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Ethan Lowe, author of Field Notes from a Pandemic, A Journey Through a World Suspended. But before that, Ed Caesar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.